It's so uh, good to be with you all again as we are in this series called Entrusted in which we're looking at the biblical vision of stewardship. And so I want to invite you today to turn to your Bibles to Genesis 1 in which we are looking at the stewardship of creation. You can also find it on page 8 in the bulletin. So let's hear God's word. Be reading from selections here. Verse 24, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then from chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And then from Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Many of you know that after college, I moved over to London to work for a pretty famous um, Christian pastor and author named John Stott, who is well-known and considered to be one of the foremost kind of evangelical authors and scholars of the 20th century. But what a lot of people don't know is that Stott, or Uncle John, as I called him, was passionate about creation. In fact, my first day of the job, when I showed up as a young 22-year-old, I found my desk, and instead of there being on the desk a personnel manual, I found a brand new pair of binoculars uh, and a field guide to the birds of Europe. Uh, it It was really mandated that any of his study assistants must share his love for birds Uh, and all things wild. So uh, I spent many, many days with him um, all over the world in places as far flung as the jungles of India and South and Central America uh, to the plains of Kenya with a binocular, pair of binoculars around one shoulder and a camera around the other um, searching for birds in the wild. I have a very impressive life list. Um, But not only that, he was passionate about creation. He um, was the first person who taught me how to compost it, because of him, I cannot leave a room uh, without turning off the lights, which I often do in our office when people are still in the bathroom and is difficult <laughs> on accident. Um, and his last book was the book, The Radical Disciple, which in some ways was his farewell address to the world in which he wanted to leave a legacy for himself and what it meant to follow Jesus. And among chapters on sanctification and Christ-likeness and nonconformity and dependence on the spirit is also included a chapter on the care of creation. I wanted to start this way because I realize in talking about something like environmental stewardship and creation care, I'm actually unfortunately wading into a controversial topic. 
Uh, this is not the case, been the case throughout church history, um, nor is it the case in the global church. In fact, there are many places in the world, including Haiti, Pastor Leon, in which there's 97% deforestation, in which evangelicals are leading the way in creation care, recognizing that it is often the poor and the vulnerable of the earth that are most impacted by the degradation of the earth. However, in America, the specter of our political tribalization uh, shadows everything. And therefore, it's almost impossible, even for a preacher that I hope you trust me enough to know that I care and want to preach the Bible, that is difficult for me to preach even about a subject as deeply biblical as creation care and not be suspected that I am toting some political agenda. And so I just want to name the white elephant in the room. Hello, white elephant. Good to see you, friend. Have a seat right there. That when we talk today about creation and human responsibility for it, we are not pandering to some progressive big government agenda that we are not talking about some following some pop, hipster, Hollywood trend, that what we are doing today is talking about the original and ancient mandate given to humanity to be stewards of God's good and created world. This is discipleship. This is biblical discipleship in which we are called to be stewards. The earth is on everybody's mind right now. Have you noticed? The ecological issues in front of us you know, are massive. Pollution and carbon emissions and climate change and destruction of habitats and extinction of species and deforestation and extreme weather events and rising sea levels. And, you know, a question that sometimes I get from my non-Christian friends are, like, what do you have to say about that? Does the Bible have anything to say about this? Is, is Christianity any resource? Frankly, a lot of people say no. In fact, um, Lynn White, who was one of the early leaders of the modern secular environmental movement, wrote a landmark essay in 1967 called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. And the number one root crisis that he named, can you guess what it is? Christian theology. He said that the very idea that Western theology and therefore civilization embraced, that Genesis 1 teaches that humans are somehow superior and above nature, has resulted in abuse and domination of creation. Now, we've got to admit there's some truth in that. Uh, this has been a manipulated and misinterpreted text. Even just last week, I saw one Christian pundit say that, quote, drilling, mining, stripping, and raping the planet is what God wants us to do, unquote. But I've got to say, the Bible stands against that. At the heart of Christian stewardship is wise care and cultivation of creation. You don't have to be a Christian to care for the earth? Of course not. But I believe, and I want to make a case for you, that the Bible gives unmatched, unparalleled resources for the care, preservation, and stewardship of the earth. It's stewardship of creation as at the heart of biblical Christian discipleship. So, let's unpack why. I want to tell you the story of the Bible through the lens of creation. Now, what we see when we look at the Bible is, first of all, that creation is good. The first thing the Bible teaches is that God is making the world. He's making wonderful, beautiful things. Day and night, land and waters, tree and vegetation, mountains and deserts, aardvarks, and antelopes, everything he creates, and he pronounces in Hebrew, tov, which means good or beautiful. Beautiful. Creation is glorious. And of course, a couple of things we can note from this, from Genesis 1, is first of all, and this is, it may be too obvious to say, but that creation is distinct from the creator, right? Which means that Christian creation care is different from the secular counterpart because we believe that God makes the earth, precedes the earth. He is not part of the earth. We reject pantheism or this idea that nature itself is divine. We don't venerate Mother Earth or the power of nature. 
We don't worship the earth. We worship the creator of heaven and earth and the one who gives, makes it and gives it glory. The other thing to see here is that all the goodness of creation, did you, did you notice in the reading? It comes before humans are even on the scene. So the earth is good, not just because it's useful, because it's utilitarian or because humans can cut it up and, and use it. No, the beauty of creation is an end in itself. It brings God's glory. Psalm 19, the heavens, the sun, the stars, the animals declare the glory of God like a piece of art reflecting the creativity and glory of the artist. A tree praises the glory of God just by being a tree. The mountains praise the glory of God just by being a mountain. God is an artist and the world is his gallery and we help creation praise God simply by letting it be what it is. Tov, good, beautiful. So creation is good and God creates human beings to be his stewards. Verse 26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Verse 28, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea. Chapter two, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it, or in some translations, tend it, care for it, steward it. All this language of ruling, subduing, working, caring is language of stewardship. And though it's often been misinterpreted, what we see here, if we read the text rightly, is that God makes us gardeners. Gardeners of his verdant creation, curators of his living gallery. And what do Gardeners and creators do, friends? Do they exploit and ruin and desecrate? No, they cultivate, protect, and care. It's Adam and Eve's job to be humble servants, careful learners, wise lovers, thoughtful gardeners, creative curators, stewards of this good world that God has made. We are stewards, not owners. We are tenants of this glorious house that God, our landlord and builder himself, who held back nothing, pulled out all the stops, entrusted to us, and then said, here, it's yours to keep. Use it well. We're stewards of God's good earth, okay? But the second chapter of the story is that creation is fallen. And we talked about this a little bit last week, that everything changes with the entry of human sin and rebellion into the world. God no longer walks with Adam and Eve. The intimacy between God and humanity is broken. Heaven and earth, which are fused in Genesis 1 and 2, are now disparate, where God no longer dwells with humanity. And as a result, it's not only our relationship with God that is broken, but creation itself is cursed, we read in Genesis 3. Human beings reject the stewardship of God's world, and instead of acting as image bearers, taking care of the property of another, they begin to have the mentality of ownership. Think like a landlord themselves. It's like a really bad experience of Airbnb, you know, where the person who's renting the house begins to just kind of take it over, ripping up the carpet, knocking holes in the walls, you know, tearing out fixtures. Dominion becomes domination and ruling becomes abusing. As co-rulers with God, we were made to be ministers and extenders of blessing and instead we become conduits of curses. And it's vital we understand this, friends, because when we talk about sin as Christians, we often just talk about, we think of it personally and individually, which is true. But what the Bible clearly teaches is that sin doesn't just have a personal impact, but it has cataclysmic, cosmic, ecological, environmental impact that sin truly has global proportions. It shatters everything that God has made. 
Creation is fallen. But chapter three comes, and that is that creation is being redeemed. God does not give up on his creation, which is amazing because God is determined to not scrap the earth. He's, he's determined that evil will not destroy uh, the good world that, that he made. And so the story of the Bible is not God kicking the earth to the curb and saving individuals to bring them up to heaven. It is the story of God reclaiming the earth and restoring his good purposes. And so after the fall, God, co- God comes to a, a man named Noah. Do you remember Noah? You remember Noah, kids, Genesis chapter nine? Hey, we all know the story, the felt board, you know, the little animals, they're so cute, getting on the ark. But it's way bigger and more important story than that. In fact, when they get off the ark, God does this amazing thing. He says, I now establish my covenant with you. This is verse 12 and 13 and with, of Genesis nine. And with every living creature that is with you. Did you hear that? My covenant is not just with you, but every living creature. And then he puts a rainbow in the sky and he says, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature on the earth. It shall be the sign of my covenant between me and the earth. So when you see a rainbow in the sky, y'all, it's God's promise, not just to you, but to your dog, to your hamster, to the sheep of the field and the birds of the forest. It is God's covenant with all creation. God says to the earth, not just I'm your creator, but I am the savior. I will redeem the earth from sin. Not the sin of the earth, but the sin of humanity who have been bad gardeners, broken stewards of creation. And this is not just some weird throwaway scripture. We see this throughout the Old Testament. In Old Testament Israel, God establishes laws that require his people to tend the earth well, to give it Sabbath rest, to practice harvest principles that work with the rhythms of the land, to treat their animals well, to refrain from labor practices that abuse their creatures. God reminds them, Leviticus 25, the land is mine. You reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. The Psalms are full of delight in God's creation, anticipating the day when he'll make it new, Psalm 98. The Old Testament prophets speak of the day when creation will be redeemed and the lion will lie down with the lamb and the mountains and hills will clap their hands. And of course, this chapter of redemption culminates in the person of Jesus when the creator actually becomes a creature in creation itself. What more beautifully validates creation than God himself indwelling it? And he lives this beautiful life as a steward and then in his death on the cross, Jesus takes upon himself the sin and rebellion of humanity and also the curse of the earth itself, the desecration of creation he bears in his own body. And then in his resurrection, Jesus rises to defeat sin and death and the devil. And it is a promise not just for a resurrected body for all of us who believe in him, but also for a resurrected world that one day he will make all things new. And then that points to that final chapter when creation will be renewed that we're told throughout the Bible and the Psalms and the prophets and the book of Romans and the book of Revelation that at the end of all things, we do not see individuals getting plucked and floating away to some heavenly place with harps. Who likes harps? It will instead be the end of all things. What do we see? We see heaven restored with earth again, just like in Eden. We see God coming back to claim the material world. The end of all things is the restoration of the earth. And y'all, nobody, no other worldview, no other religion can say this. Secularism believes that this earth is just gonna burn up with the sun one day, and so we gotta do all we can to keep it alive as much as possible. World religions teach that the end of all things is getting whisked away to some mystical place, some 
some habitation of the soul. Only Christianity, only the Bible teaches that this earth is permanent. That it is the dwelling place of God with men and women. And that as Romans 8 says, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the sons and daughters of God. This is why we like just do crazy weird stuff like as Christians at Christmas time. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive his king, receive her king. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse, come on, y'all. <laughs> far as the curse is found, that's everything. So if you are a human being, and I believe we all are, then you were made to be a steward. And this is the heart of the biblical story, and even more so if you know Jesus, because in and through him, your relationship not only to God, but creation is restored. And the invitation of Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation, to you is to join him in his work of renewing all things. Thank the Lord we're not responsible for ultimately saving the earth. We can't. But only the triune God can do that. And in his generosity, he invites us into his renewing work. That we might partner with him in the stewardship and the renewal of the world. Wow, right? Amazing. Well, so what does this mean for us as stewards? Well, let me just make a few suggestions here. First of all, I think we need to embrace the whole gospel. I'm convinced that part of the reason why Christians, and especially evangelical Christians, have lost this vital theme of scripture is because we have lost the whole gospel in many cases. You know, today we talked about a four-chapter gospel, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. That's the story of the whole Bible. But for many Christians, uh, those last two end chapters have kind of shrunk into nothing. And so all we have left is just sin and redemption. You're a sinner, Separated from God, Jesus lived and died and rose for you that you might be reconciled to him. That is true. That is beautiful. That is glorious. Thanks be to God. But as a result, we've often left off the first and fourth chapter. And how are you supposed to know the whole story without the first and fourth chapter? Some of y'all have heard me tell this before, but, you know, growing up, my mom, uh, we used to watch, have family movie night every Friday night. And, uh, but inevitably, my mother was always doing something in the kitchen. And so she'd come in about 10 or 15 minutes after we started the movie. And then she'd be like totally confused. And she'd be like, who's that? What's she doing? Why is he kissing her? You know, like the whole time she'd be asking these questions because she was so confused. She had no idea what was going on. And then by the end, she'd be so confused that she would just go to sleep or leave. And so she would miss the whole first and back part of the movie. And how are you supposed to know the whole story when you're missing the beginning and the end? Friends, how are we supposed to know and proclaim the whole story when we're missing the beginning and the end? The story of the Bible does not begin with chapter two, with we are a sinner. It begins with chapter one, that we are made in God's image, his beloved creatures called to steward all things under his guidance and care. And the story does not end with us getting saved and whisked to heaven. The story ends with a reclaimed world, a restoration of all creation. And so that's the story that we have to reclaim. And I am convinced that this world So many people who don't know Jesus, who are so passionate about the earth, guess what? We have the best story. We have the best story in which in the end, God wins. And the whole earth is reclaimed and you have the privilege of joining him now in the renewal of all things. Don't you want to be a part of that? Embrace the whole gospel. Another thing I'd say is to love God's creation. You know, a sign that you really love someone is that you love what they love. 
I used to hate soccer. I thought it was the dumbest sport. But then guess what? I had kids and two of my girls are obsessed with soccer. They love it. So I have learned to love this game. Go Liverpool. You know, I love it now. You love, you want to love what the people you love, love. And so if you love God, and I know a lot of you say you do, will you not love the world that he just rejoices over and pronounces good and says tov every day? Part of this means, I think, just enjoying creation, getting connected to it. Uncle John said that every Christian should have at least one hobby that connects them with the earth. He was very biased towards bird watching because he said it's the only hobby that the Lord Jesus actually literally commanded. Go watch the birds. They do not labor or spin. Matthew 6. So um, I do bird watch. My kids think it's super nerdy, but I do. And uh, mostly though, I just get outside. Sometimes on my day off, I just go into the woods, leave my phone, sit, sit next to the river, and I just delight in the creation that proclaims the glory of God. Get to know the piece of earth where God has set you, you know, your own backyard, the trees and birds and insects and plants that live there. Get to know the part of earth that you live in in Richmond, um, our ecosystem, our river, which incidentally just won the biggest major international award in the world for river and watershed restoration. Did you know that? James, this the James River this week. One of the things I think that the technological revolution has done is that it has separated us from creation. Very few of us need to put our hands in the dirt anymore to grow our own food or to hunt through the forest to find our dinner or to forage or any of those things. All of our modern conveniences are wonderful and yet a downside is as they have separated us from the creation that all of us are interdependent with. A hundred years ago, it would have been not at all unusual for a church to be praying for rain during a, a drought because they understood their interdependence with creation and God's rulership over it. But now, you know, we don't pray about that stuff. We just go and buy our meat from cellophane wrapped in cellophane, or we go to buy the tomatoes that have been grown all year long in greenhouses, right? So one of the things we can do is not just enjoy creation and delight in it and give thanks for it, but also thank God for our own interdependence with it. You say blessing when you eat a meal. Why not say a blessing when you turn on the lights? Hear the praise of this grateful heart, or turn on the faucet, or pump gas. Those are fossil fuels that you are now stewarding for your own life. You are a steward, and part of a steward is to delight in the earth and to thank God for your own interdependence with it. The last thing I'll say is this. Accept your calling as a steward of creation. Are there simple ways that you and your family can practice faithful stewardship of God's good earth? Of course, we all know the things that we can do, like recycling and composting and reducing waste and energy-efficient practices and being more thoughtful about how we eat, supporting farmers, sustainable practices, things like that. But I just want to say that as Christians, we can actually do this stuff differently, not out of guilt or shame or legalism or fear, but we can do it out of joy because we have been reconciled to God through Jesus and therefore our own relationship with creation has been restored. And so I got to tell you, you know, I love buying cage-free eggs and I don't love buying them because I, it's not just because I think that, um, that I like to see animals treated better. But it's because I believe that a new earth is coming in which chickens will no longer be crammed in tiny cages and chickens themselves will be liberated from their bondage to decay and will give God praise forever and ever. I know you're laughing, but I, tr this is tr I, I want to celebrate now the foretaste of what is to come, that all things will be made new, including chickens. It is an act of praise and worship and thanksgiving to our mighty God and Jesus Christ who has redeemed all things. Thanks be to God. So, so think about your personal practices. Another thing, look at your work life. One of my favorite laws in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 25.4. Don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. 
I love that. The ox, my ox loves that. Um, I'm just kidding. I don't have an ox. (laughs) You're like, what in the world? Why do you like that? Listen, like in Old Testament Israel, they would lay out the harvest sheaves and then an ox would drag it around with a big sledge and a stone to sever the grain from the stalks. It was a tool for grain production. And so sometimes in order to maximize profits, farmers would muzzle the ox so that it couldn't eat the grain while it was treading it. It was basically a way for them to maximize economic gains, maximize profit while they were producing their harvest. God says, don't do that. Mm -mm." He says, that's my creature. Share your grain with the animal that's providing it. Do not ever put maximizing your profit and your harvest ahead of caring for my good creation. So are there ways that your company or your work or your life might be putting profit ahead of care of God's good earth? Are there ways that you have influence in your office or industry that you can advocate for better food practices or waste management policies or energy efficiencies? Kids, young adults, students, there's a lot of you here. Think about this as a future vocation. We need more architects, engineers, scientists, and farmers who love Jesus and who love the earth and who can help us solve problems that help bring our world more in line with God's intentions. You could be like one of my heroes, Joel Salatin, of Polyface Farm in Swoop, Virginia, who calls himself a Christian libertarian environmentalist capitalist lunatic farmer. Uh, he wrote the best-selling book, The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs. Uh, Joel has enacted these remarkable farming practices like rotational grazing systems, mobile fencing, portable chicken coops. He treats his animals so well, he says, my animals only have one bad day. <laughs> he... Uh, he has become, you know, y'all, Joel Salatin has become such the darling of the environmental movement that you go to Elwood Thompson, there's a big, huge poster of him right up in the front of Elwood Thompson. The, the, the liberal environmentalists love him, but they also hate him because he won't stop talking about Jesus and how he learned how to farm from the book of Deuteronomy. And so what we see there is that it's possible to be a follower of Jesus and to do this in a way that is rooted in a vision of biblical stewardship and that is pointing to the day when Jesus will make all things new. Let me close. There's always a danger in a sermon like this that you'll walk away feeling burdened, like I've given you another law, something else to do. But friends, remember what this is about. This is about the gospel, the good news that though this good world is broken and cursed, God has entered into it through the person of Jesus, who has risen from the dead and is now renewing all things and who will one day restore creation. You are saved, not because of your good environmental practices. You are saved because of Jesus and his grace. You are saved because God loves you. And I hope today that if you are here and you don't know Jesus and you do love the earth, that you will see that God loves you and God made you and God loves the earth and he made this earth. And you can be fully yourself by getting to know not just creation, but the creator who made it. And that you can know that in and through Jesus who loves you, is holding you and holding our earth. We are stewards of creation because of grace. We're called to be faithful stewards, to protect it, preserve it, But in the end, our world will not be saved by us and what we do, but by God and what God does, his covenant with the earth, his love of creation, his promise to save and renew. And so we can be stewards with great hope, with great hope. John Stott died in 2011 at the age of 90. And a few months after his death, a very important looking letter showed up in my mailbox. It had my name and address written brightly with a clearly very expensive fountain pen, postmarked from London. And ripping open the letter, I found a very neatly printed check for a thousand pounds inside, informing me that the former Reverend Dr. John R. W. Stott had left this money to me in his will to be given as a posthumous gift of gratitude 
for my service to him. It didn't seem right to just like use it for groceries. <laughs> and so Sarah and I talked about how, you know, what's a symbolic way that we could use this gift in a way that honors his life? And so on his birthday, April 27th, we went to uh, a camera store and we bought a really nice single lens reflex camera with a very high performing telephoto lens. And so now every time I pick up my binoculars and I pick up my field guide and I pick up my camera I head outdoors, I remember that here I hold in my hand a tool of a faithful steward, one who loved, rejoiced, and cared for creation because it pointed to the one that he loved, his creator king. So may God make us also into good stewards of his good earth, the earth that Jesus came for, that Jesus died for, that Jesus rose for, and Jesus comes again for, to make all things new. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by you all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. You are before all things, and in you all things hold together. And through you, Jesus, God reconciled all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the shed blood of the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you are Lord of creation. You are Lord of all living things. You are Lord of our good world, and you have not given up on our world and that you have died and risen to redeem it. Help us to be good stewards of what you've given. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.